Hey, podcast listener, are you working so hard you wonder if the money is even worth it? If you're like most CPAs I work with, you have way too much to do, you feel relentless deadline pressure, and worst of all, you feel torn between serving clients and being with family. What if I told you you could work a 40-hour week without losing a dime? I know it sounds impossible, but my Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is designed for CPAs just like you who want to get their lives back. Down to 40 Hours CPA Mastermind is launching soon. In it, you'll learn how to start getting your time back week by week, make your workload manageable while still bringing in plenty of revenue, what to put in your packages and how to price them, and so much more. Don't leave your future to chance. CPA Mastermind will get you on the same profitable path you've been searching for. With unlimited coaching, your success is guaranteed. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there. Look, I think there is a legitimate case to be made of running a lifestyle accounting firm. Like, for me, it's it's a lifestyle. I, I I want my forty clients. I enjoy their time, my time with them. I make my whatever I make a year. I'm never going to sell my firm, and I'm happy with that. Great. That's a lifestyle accounting firm. You are an accountant. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a different way to run an accounting practice, which is to say, I want to build an accounting firm, and that requires a different way of thinking. And you can't be the one delivering the work or being the clients primary service provider if you want to build an accounting firm, in my view. Welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast, where I help you work less and make more. My name is Geraldine Carter. Subscription is all the rage in software and in other industries, but the accounting industry is hardly speedy on the uptake. While the value appears to be there, something, or perhaps many things, are in the way of accountants and CPAs making the shift to the subscription pricing model. Here today to talk with me about this is my guest, John Warlow. John is the founder of the Value Builder System, a practice management software for business advisors. He's also the author of the best-selling book, Built to Sell, The Automatic Customer, and The Art of Selling Your Business. He's the host of the Built to Sell Radio, which was recognized by Forbes as one of the 10 best podcasts for business owners. John Warlow, welcome to the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Great to be with you, Geraldine. Let's start right at the beginning. Why should CPAs care about the subscription business model? Well, it makes the practice a whole lot more fun to run and a whole lot more valuable. Most importantly, when you go to transition out of your CPA firm, whether that's next year or 20 years from now, it will be a more valuable firm if you've got recurring revenue. Because acquirers, whether that's another large you know, accounting firm or some other acquirer, they all value recurring revenue at a higher rate than transactional revenue. I think, though, there's a hidden reason, and it speaks to the nature of your podcast, which is to kind of work less and make more. I think when you have recurring revenue, it makes your business more predictable. And predictability allows you to build a much more efficient firm. When you know how many customers you're going to have next month or next quarter, you can hire the right number of associates. You can bring on the right number of support staff. You you just run a much more efficient practice if you know sort of what next month is going to look like. Whereas if you're sort of constantly running the roller coaster of a CPA firm where you know you've got tax season and it goes chaotic, and then you've got a period of a lull after that, it it, it is much more difficult to plan. And uh, and so I think there's a, a whole host of reasons why you know, subscription models make sense. The other, the other one we, that I should probably raise, which is, which is sort of hidden, but I think is really important is what, 
we refer to as the Trojan horse effect, whereby once somebody subscribes to your firm, not only do you get the recurring revenue associated with that subscription, but it makes them more likely to buy other things from you. So it makes them much more likely to buy all of your other services, wealth management, audits, whatever, if they're a subscriber. And and we know that if we look at Amazon as an example, and we compare people who are just transactional users of Amazon, people who buy things from Amazon versus those that are subscribers to Prime, their recurring revenue subscription model, Prime subscribers will pay or invest, spend roughly 3.5 times more than an average Amazon customer. And we see that virtually in every industry. It just is once you have that relationship with a subscriber, you have their credit card, you have permission to communicate with them. They know who you are, you know who they are. It provides a platform to sell other things to them and you already have their trust, et cetera. So it's, it's just got so many angles to it that I think it, it's a huge miss if, if we don't move to subscription. So more money, more predictable, more enjoyable, and a host of other reasons. What do you think is so hard for business owners about making the transition from the transactional business model to the subscription business model? Yeah, it's a great question. I think oftentimes we try to boil the ocean. What do I mean by that? I mean, we try to come up with a subscription model that will serve all of our customers. So we think, okay, so, you know, we've got all these, you know, we've got 200 accounts, some are big, some are small, some are manufacturing, others are service. How do I come up with a subscription model that they will all value? And I think that's a recipe for a diluted, crappy subscription model. I think instead what you want to first do is segment. So really segmentation is about understanding what are the unique needs or homogeneous needs of your customer segments. And are there, is there a bucket of customers that have a unique need? I'll give you an example outside of accounting and then we'll come back to accounting. Uh, my favorite example comes from H. Bloom that I wrote about in the Automatic Customer. They uh, are in a business of, of, of selling flowers and they try to figure out how do we sell flowers on subscription. And you know, when you think about who buys flowers, it's, you know, graduation, uh, funerals, uh, Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, et cetera. There's lots of reasons people buy flowers. And most of those reasons are transactional, meaning they're one-off. And these two guys, Brian Burkhart and Sandy Panda came along and said, we're going to sell flowers, but we're going to do it on subscription. And so instead of trying to come up with a subscription for everybody who buys flowers, which would have been a mistake, they said, okay, who has a need for flowers on a recurring basis? And and they identified that five-star hotels buy flowers regularly. Why? Because we want that image. You know, the hotel wants the image. When we as customers walk up to the hotel front desk, we want those that $200 bouquet of flowers that says, okay, I'm, I'm happy to be pending $800 a night for this hotel because it's obviously a very prestigious hotel. They buy flowers on a recurring basis. And it generally falls to the general manager to pick up the new flowers and they have better things to do, frankly, than go walk down to the flower store. And and so H. Bloom came along and said, look, we'll sell you a subscription to flowers. We'll ship you every two weeks a brand new fancy bouquet of flowers and you can get back to running your hotel. Well, as you might imagine, it totally transformed the business of selling flowers. Typical transaction today, if you walk into a flower store, is around $50. When H. Bloom sells a subscription to a hotel, over the lifetime of that relationship, they'll capture more than $4,500 worth of revenue from that hotel. So one sale, $4,500 worth of revenue. All of a sudden, you can start to imagine what that means for that, that hotel. 
you you now can hire salespeople, right? Which is one of the things that, that accountants don't do, right? Was, the, the reason accounting firms often stay small is the partners think it's their job to bring in the business and be the rainmaker. And as a result, they they can't hire or don't hire salespeople. And, and so the firm kind of plateaus. Whereas at H. Bloom, they have all sorts of money to hire and sell and pay for salespeople because they're capturing so much more lifetime value. And they know that when they win a customer, they've got a huge runway to monetize that relationship. So look, I think subscriptions are important, but instead of trying to dilute your model or try to come up with something for all of your customers. I think the first step is segmenting. I'll give you another example that does come from the accounting world. Um, do you know Darren Root? Yes, author of E-Myth for Accountants and Rootworks. Yeah, exactly. Well, when he was looking at his firm and going through this process of trying to build it to sell, et cetera, he looked at all the things that they offered, Bloomington, Indiana-based uh, accounting firm. And they the classic accounting firm, right? They did, you know, technology transformations, they did audits, they did a little bit of M&A work, uh, obviously tax and compliance stuff. And he said, what what can we do to make this more of a subscription? And he identified that a lot of his clients were medical practitioners, so chiropractors, dentists, and so forth. And they didn't really value having a back office person in their company, right? That was a salary, $60,000, $70,000 a year that was sort of underemployed in a lot of these firms. And so Darren packaged up a set of services, bank reconciliation, uh, you know, credit card processing, et cetera, and called it the boss system, back office support system, branded it that. It was a recurring subscription model. And he offered it to his firms, uh, to, to these dental practices and these chiropractic clinics. And it was a smashing success. Again, think about what he did. He didn't just try to create a subscription model for anybody who used his accounting firm. He said, okay, what's the sub-segment, in his case, medical firms, that would value this offering the best? And that's how he built out the boss system. So I think the first step is segmenting. I love it. So I want to talk about some of the different variations that you came up with in your book, The Automatic Customer, on ways that businesses can include the subscription model. And I think the most obvious one for accountants, I mean, there's already a sort of subscription revenue sort of stream baked into the business model of accounting, which is you need it done every month, right? So that one is just there for the taking. So far, what I've seen, and I've been looking, looking, looking for accountants and CPA firms who pull in other types of the nine variations that you mentioned in your book. And to date, I haven't found anything. It's not to say that it doesn't exist. But I'm wondering if you've seen other examples of the subscription model in play that does not necessarily include fee for services, stuff like access, front of the line, like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. So the simplifier model is the is the model that you referenced earlier, and the insight there is that for a lot of customers, they would prefer to have a simple relationship where they you bill them once a month, and they get access to you, and there's a predetermined set of services that they get for you, and they don't have to worry about combing through your bill, counting the number of hours, trying to figure out why it's more than the last. Like like none of that. It just simplifies their life. That's the simplifier model, and that's really the most classic way that accounting firms would would sort of apply the model. The one that comes to to mind immediately is the membership model, whereby uh, a lot of accounting firms will run masterminds. Um, again, specific to industries usually works better than being home or agnostic masterminds. But essentially, a mastermind, 
the insight is like an EO group or a Vistage group where you host a, a a group of business owners who act as each other's advisory board or board of directors. And, and that can be very valuable. Obviously you get the role of chair and that gives you a, a sense of status in the room, but also the, the business owners act as each other's advisory boards. And, and in a mastermind, it's obviously lends itself to a monthly billing program. And the key insight here is, is exclusivity. So what, the membership model kind of pertains to, and again, think if you if you're part of a ski club, a private ski club, or uh, you know a private golf club, or any sort of private club. What in part makes it sexy is its exclusivity, right? The fact that nobody can, not everybody can get in. And so again, if you're going to build out a mastermind as an accounting firm, what I think you want to do is be very specific at, you know, who gets in and, and limit it. Usually it's, you know, eight or so people around the table. And once it's full, it's full. And that, that has an allure for some business owners. So again, I, I think that's a, a classic model. Front of the line is a little less common in a services business. Front of the line, the the insight here is that some people will pay to jump the queue, right? And we've all done this. You, you know, you go to Disney and you buy the fast pass that gets you to the front of the line. You know, if you in some places you have to drive a Prius to get into the HOV lane. Other 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 places you could just literally buy your way into the special lane that allows you to go faster than the rest of the people. So we are pretty comfortable as a society kind of paying for access. And so, um, you know, in the case of front of the line models, they're most common in software businesses where you you pay for premium level service. So you get a general level service if, you, if you're a software subscriber. And then if you're a special customer, you get extra speedy response time. So again, it could, I, I'm not familiar with any accounting firms that do this, but you could sort of provide a heightened level of service to your subscribers. And sometimes, and so this could be, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a monthly billing customer with us or a subscriber, as opposed to a transactional customer, you know, we guarantee you uh, the, the best slots at tax time. You know, I've seen dental practices, for example, where, you know, Saturday morning between 10 and 12 is like the primo time to get your teeth cleaned. And so they only give that that window up to their sort of subscribers, those recurring paying customers. So those are all sort of different ways to implement the front of the line. But if essentially you're providing premium access to your you know most senior talent in your firm on an expedited basis in return for a subscription. Again, and that can often be combined with others, right? So simplifier, like we'll do your tax return, we'll be here as your advisors throughout the year. And if you join this program, you know, you'll get four hour response time from a partner on any urgent issue. As an example, you could, you could structure it that way. So I'm reminded as we're talking here that recently with a client we developed when we were building out her packages in terms of bronze, silver, gold, platinum, the front of the line model, it's just occurring to me that what we did was front of the line. You get your books done by the 10th in the silver, whatever you get your books done by the 20th. And in the bronze, you get them done by the 31st. Love it. Yeah. Love it. And, and there's and there's tremendous value for folks, you know, for people, fast growing companies that want that that 
sort of rhythm of their company and the finger on the pulse of what's going on, a 10-day book, uh, you know, month-end close is valuable and they pay a premium for that. And I think that's great. That's a, that's a perfect example. See, there you go. Yeah. So um, the other one I want to ask about is access, because if I did a word cloud of your entire book, mm. the word that would pop up the largest in the middle would be access. And the other day I was talking to a client and we were, you know, same deal building out her tiers of services. And I had in the platinum cell phone access for five people, right? Your top five clients. And she goes, all of my clients have my cell phone. And I was like, oh, well, <laughs> we need to stop that and change your cell phone number. <laughs> That's a little bit of an exaggeration. But can you speak to the value of access? Because I think that many accountants, they're aware that access is highly valuable, but they do not limit it and therefore leverage it. Yeah, I think, you know, access is definitely a common theme or vein that runs through the book. And I agree with you that it is something that oftentimes accountants sort of give away in an effort to be perceived as client-centric or client-friendly. But, you know, I think it's a recipe for keeping your firm very small and, and, and undermining the lifestyle that, that an accounting firm should deliver for you. I think instead what you want to do, and, and it sounds like you're doing this with the clients you work with, is productize. And so productize is, is a sort of uh, very close cousin to subscription model where you're effectively taking a service company and making it look like a product company. And so you, you, in your case, you example, you, you mentioned the silver gold, you know, platinum packages. That's an effort to productize. So what you're basically doing is, is you're creating tangible offerings that, that feel like a product. And so if you're doing this right, you name it. I, I wouldn't always suggest you use gold, silver, because it's a bit overused. But if you name it something... And then you brand it. So if you think about brands, they they you know the, the font is always the same. There's usually a trademark. There's a description. There's a how to use it. Uh, there's a set of promises. There may be a guarantee associated with it. There's language that is always very consistent. And again, this is. This is not necessarily the wheelhouse of the typical accounting firm. Uh, you know, we think about billing by the hour and 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 offering services, and 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 yet, what we would really benefit from is ripping a page out of the book of the consumer packaged goods companies, the the Procter and Gamble's of the world, that say, you know, when you buy a bottle of Tide, whether you buy it at Costco or Walgreens. It's the same bottle. It looks exactly the same. The promise is on the back. The logo looks the same. And that's the kind of, and again, it may, as I say the words, it may sound so trivial and simplistic. And But trust me, when you productize, you make tangible, it really goes to differentiating your office. I mean, I go back to Darren Root at the BOSS system, stands for Back Office Support System. It was a brand. It had a logo. It was a thing. And it allowed him to get out of the actual delivery. Again, in the absence of a brand, you're forcing your client to evaluate you as an accounting professional, right? In the absence of a brand, what am I supposed to do to evaluate whether I should use your firm or the one down the street? Well, I, I better go on LinkedIn and see my accountant's background. I want to know how long he or she has been an accountant and how, you know, whether he's, he or she has been in-house or, you know, the firm, what are the clients they work with or recommendations. Now I'm evaluating you as a person, right? And when I'm evaluating you, guess who I expect to do the books? I want you to do the books and oversee my tax return. And I hired you, not your firm. I hired you. 
and all of a sudden they want you and your cell phone number and you, you know, you to call them back on Christmas day when they can't balance it, whatever it is, it's because you're making them buy you because we're not productizing your firm. Whereas if you're, you're buying a thing like the boss system or the platinum package or whatever, and if you branded it correctly, you should be able to interchangeably remove the one accountant from the other. And that doesn't mean you don't guarantee it or that you don't have a client-centric business. It means that you personally are not being evaluated and then being forced to deliver the service on the back end. Does that make sense? So that makes a ton of sense. And I think the pressure, the symptom that accountants feel is the constant overwork, constantly in demand, always under stress, backed up against a deadline. And it's that is the symptom of making the firm about you and your delivery and your service rather than making it about what this product does for your business. Exactly. And there was a piece in there that I want to highlight and ask you a little bit more about because what you said, it enables the accountant to get out of delivery. And I think that that might scramble a few minds going, wait a minute, what I do is delivery. So how do accountants need to think about what they do if they're supposed to get out of delivery? Yeah, it reminds me of a a speech I heard uh, gosh, 20 years ago, I was part of this thing called Birthing of Giants, which is the most pretentious name for a conference. But it was a it was a conference that I attended as a as a. I would never a, want to give a, birth to a giant. <laughs> Can you imagine? Bog, it was called Bog. It's been it's been rebranded as Entrepreneurial Masters Programs. That's you, better. Yeah, it's it's held on the MIT Executive Campus. It's beautiful, like as, as you imagine it to be, amphitheater style seating. And I was one of sixty entrepreneurs that were selected to go to this thing. Again, it's 20 years ago now. And we had Pat Lynchoni come in and talk about how to build a team. The guy behind the five confessions of a CEO, that guy, uh, Jack Stack, talk about employee ownership. I mean, it was just a, a really great list of speakers. This one guy comes in who I'd never heard of named Stephen Watkins. And Watkins had just sold his company. And he started off by asking everybody in the room, he said, okay, how many of you are involved in selling your product or service? And you wouldn't believe Geraldine, like every one of our hands went up, like the, you know, the, the, the kid in, in second grade who wants to be picked in the classroom, like we're all, oh, pick me, pick me. And he says, okay, put your hands down. He says, look, here's the deal. You all have the right skills. You're selling the wrong product. You hire salespeople to sell your product or your service. Your job is to sell your firm. And so to answer your question, and what I mean by what he went on to say is, is the process of, of marketing your firm, branding your firm, building partnerships for your firm, working, to use a Michael Gerber expression, on, not in your business, is your job, right? Is to, it, not to deliver the work, not to do the selling, et cetera. And so, again, to go back to your point around like getting out of the delivery, again, you've got a choice. You can either do the accounting in which case your your firm has a limit on to which it will ever grow, fair. Or you can see your role of a, as a CEO of an accounting firm and, and hire accountants to do the work. This is not unique to accountants. I mean, I could be talking to dental practice owners, right? You could, you could decide, I want to be a dentist and your job is to see patients, fair enough. 
or you want to build a dental practice and you're going to hire a group of young, you know, dental practitioners, dentists, cleaners, whatever. Um, hygienists. Dental, dental hygienists, thank you. And you run a company. And again, those two things are mutually exclusive. I don't believe you can do both. I think if you try to do both, you're going to do a, a crappy job of both roles. But it, I think it's a legitimate reason. Look, I think there is a legitimate case to be made of running a lifestyle accounting firm. Like, for me, it's it's a lifestyle. I, I I want my forty clients. I enjoy their time, my time with them. I make my whatever I make a year. I'm never going to sell my firm, and I'm happy with that. Great. That's a lifestyle accounting firm. You are an accountant. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a different way to run an accounting practice, which is to say, I want to build an accounting firm, and that requires a different way of thinking. And you can't be the one delivering the work or being the clients primary service provider if you want to build an accounting firm, in my view. Yep. Okay. So I want to go back to the weeds for a minute because one of the things that you mentioned is, it might be one of the, I think it's toward the end of the book where you're talking about like extra considerations and it's the idea of a free trial, but onboarding a client, which I love the idea of a free trial, right? Because it enables you to get a taste of what it's like and so on. But onboarding a client is a significant amount of work, right? Huge. It's oftentimes two months to move soup to nuts until you're a full client. So the idea of a free trial is like, how, how would I make that work? So can you help us think outside the box about free trial in terms of giving your prospect something that they might experience for free that doesn't require the massive onboarding experience to test it out? Yeah, I mean, again, it depends a little bit on on what your subscription model or product is going to be, and and that might back into a more easily carved out offering. Like, for example, if your accounting firm is going to specialize in advisory services, if you're going to be sort of a strategic you know, business coach kind of accountant, then then you could offer some sort of upfront benchmarking questionnaire, a value builder. We have one called the value builder questionnaire. There's other ones like, um, there's Myers-Briggs surveys, there's personality assessments. There, there are these sort of assessments that you can do, which are neat little tidy packages of content that allow the business owner to answer a set of questions about their, their business. And you provide some sort of insight or wisdom associated with that. And that could be a, a kind of a try before you buy, get a look at the way we think, kind of approach. But interestingly, I, I, I that, that might be a way to kind of give people a tester. I, I also would share your hesitation around some sort of free trial because one of the things that's going to keep your subscription really sticky is having lots of hooks into your client, right? And so that's why the transition or the onboarding of a new client is so arduous for accounting firms is because you generally have lots of hooks in, right? Like all the bank accounts, all the merchant processing accounts, the wealth management account. I mean, there's a whole set of, of, of accounts that you get set up and then you've got hooks in. The good news, obviously, is that once they're a client, ripping them out of all that is really hard. And it means that they stay sticky in despite of oftentimes inertia, effectively, as opposed to loyalty. But I wouldn't obviously try, you know, offer some sort of free trial because the cost to you would be exorbitant. I think what you probably want to do is have something that's adjacent to what you would typically offer, like a benchmarking questionnaire report or something like that, that, that gives people a taste but, but doesn't cost you a truckload to, uh, to administer. 
Okay, great. So a free trial of something else that provides value. Not a trial, but like a but something free and valuable yeah. that can really help the business owner make some real progress in their business. So I want to go over to some getting into the nitty gritty of MRR, ARR, CAC, like the acronym, the alphabet soup of of the subscription model and what accountants need to be looking at. Um, but before we do, I'm curious to know, because you talk to a lot of business owners and especially business owners who are going to sell or have sold, what they say about the extent to which their accountants, who are still steeped in the traditional transactional model, what their accountants understand about the subscription model and lifetime value and cost of acquisition of a customer and so on. Is the accountant super helpful? Are they totally on it and up to speed? Or is there some lag? What's going on? Yeah, I think it depends on the kind of owner. So we segment business owners into one of three psychographic segments. We refer to them as mountain climbers who are motivated by growth and achievement. You think of the class, you know, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, these are examples of like uber mountain climbers, right? They're, they're constantly growing. Freedom fighters are second segment and they are motivated by independence. And so they start companies not to be the next Tesla, but to give themselves personal freedom. That's their most important driver. And then craftspeople are motivated by mastery. And mastery means that they want to be acknowledged for being the best at what they do. When it comes to the relationship with their accountants, it depends on the psychographic profile. So mountain climbers are very dismissive of their accountant. They view them as a bean counter, as someone who looks through the rearview mirror, and someone that, that it really is just the tax and compliance guy or gal. Very dismissive. Very difficult to have a strategic relationship with a mountain climber. They view other entrepreneurs as their most trusted advisors, not their accountants. Freedom fighters, by contrast, are almost exactly the opposite. They view their accountant typically as their most trusted advisor. And so they are very much in like, likely to seek the advice of their accountant before making a business decision. Craftspeople are a little bit of a hybrid of a consumer in that they are the most risk averse of the three psychographics, meaning they don't hire full-time employees. And so because they don't have full-time employees, they really are consumer-like in their decision-making. In their, so you know they will go to their accountant for consumer tax advice, right? Like my tax return as opposed to, and, and in, in the same breath, their business tax return. So they, they combine, if you will, the consumer-like questions along with the business questions. Whereas again, the freedom fighters, these, these business owners who are motivated by independence are very loyal to their accountant and are likely to see their accountant as their most trusted advisor. That makes sense? It, well, it makes perfect sense and I love it. And that makes me think on the accountant's behalf, on the listener's behalf, Pay attention to who you're dealing with, because if you've got a mountain climber on your hands, that's that may not be a great experience for you as the accountant. It could be a great experience, but I think, Geraldine, you have to make sure what you're selling them lines up with what they want to buy from you. A mountain climber is going to, I mean, they are going to want to grow their business. They are going to need raise capital for their company. So they're going to want to know what is your experience raising capital, uh, doing audits because companies that raise money need audited financial statements. They're going to want to know what your experience in corporate finance is, et cetera. They're not going to want strategic advice from you. 
they're going to want to know what is your experience in corporate finance. A freedom fighter is going to have a very different set of needs. And so it's not that you can't work with mountain climbers. It's just that you don't want to try to sell business advice to a mountain climber. That's, I think, a bad fit. Whereas that could be a very good fit for a freedom fighter. I got it. I love the answer. (laughs) And yet it doesn't answer the question. Which is, what's your observation of accountants' fluency, if you will, in these super important ratios and metrics when it comes to the subscription model and helping business owners grow? Cost of acquisition relative to customer lifetime value, monthly recurring revenue and looking forward versus straight up profit and loss. Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I would not say it is the vocabulary that most accountants are comfortable with, right? Like we're, how do accountants learn about financials? I mean, it's, it's you know, it's, it's the big three financial statements that that accountants are trained to interpret, right? Balance sheet, profit and loss, cash flow statement. And so that language is is much more comfortable than the vocabulary used by subscription-based software companies, for example, that that talk about MRR, AR, LTV to CAC, et cetera, which are which is a whole different language. And and we have to acknowledge that there is a, a fundamental uh, discrepancy. I'm not sure right the wor- right word is between the traditional accounting you learn at an accounting school and the financial metrics that that subscription company operators tend to live and die by. And and it and it makes sense when you get underneath the the sheets of this. So if you look at say Microsoft 365 in the old days. Microsoft used to go into Staples and you bought a box of software off the shelf. I dare say we're both old enough to remember those days where you actually physically got the CDs and you loaded them in. I don't know. Um, You could say, screw off, John. I'm not that old. Yeah, screw off. I'm not that old. I remember those days. I remember those days. And, and, you know, Microsoft, you, you, you pay whatever, four or $500 to, to Staples and, and Microsoft would get the $405, you know, and, and that would be the transaction. These days, of course, that's not how it works. Now we pay $100 a year for 365 and our lifetime value could be many, many multiples of that $100. Uh, but we only get to recognize $100 a year for Microsoft. And so, you know, if we're looking at, at a profit and loss statement, oftentimes there's a period when a company goes through a, tr- a transition to a, a subscription model where they look much less profitable on paper because they're kind of catching up to their subscribers. Whereas when a sub- mature subscription company shows its profit and loss statement, it, it tends to look quite robust because they've got all that base of recurring revenue. So long story short, I, I don't think the vocabulary comes naturally to most accounting firms. And it in many cases even sort of contradicts what the big three, you know, statements are. I remember a silly example, but I think it it's germane to what we're talking about. I I used to run a former company of mine was a quantitative market research business, like a little bit like a small version of Bloomberg or Thomson Reuters, one of these you know companies that sell information on a subscription basis. And in the early days, we weren't subscription; we were project based consultancy. So we you know hire you could hire us, and we charge you by the day, by the hour, whatever for project. And I'd gotten wind of the subscription model and how how cool it was, and so I I wanted to make this transition, and so we did that, and we. We kind of said, 
you know, you could basically buy a set of our services or our research, and instead of charging you by the hour, we'll, we'll say you, we'll give it to you for an annual fee. And I think the annual fee—it was a lot of proprietary, like a lot of very sort of high-level research. The annual fee was around forty thousand dollars for the subscription, and so. In the old days, we'd take the 40 grand we won from a project and we'd recognize it in the month that we did the project. In in this case, we took the 40 grand and we recognize it in 12 equal installments over the life of the subscription. And so my accountant really didn't kind of understand this and she was in the process of sending me kind of monthly reconciled financial statements. And month two or three of the subscription model, she's kind of like, are you sure about the subscription model? Because because you've gone from making you know twenty five thirty percent profit margins to like losing money every month, and and she didn't really kind of appreciate what we were doing, and she kind of actually gave us a fair amount of kind of pressure to reconsider. Ultimately, we made the move to subscription, and then we you know we got acquired by a New York Stock Exchange listed company because we were a subscription company. And had we not made the move and stayed as a transactional model, we would never have been acquired by a publicly traded company. We wouldn't have been in the conversation. But it was because we made this move and we actually got pushback, resistance, like strategic advice not to do it, based largely on the fact that we were we were taking that 40 grand, even though we were taking all the cash up front. And so our cash flow was robust. We were taking it on our profit and loss statement in 12 equal installments. So in that case, our accountant sort of almost did us a disservice to to sort of dissuade us from this this model, where in actual fact it was it was absolutely strategically the right way to go. So that's a silly example from my past. That goes back again 15 years ago. So I'm sure the same accountant, if we were working with them today, would have a much better appreciation for subscription model. I, I would hope. Well, I hope you sent her some flowers from H. Bloom when you got listed on the stock exchange. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I did not. But in the book, you mentioned that you went back to the traditional model. Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, we did for. Uh, Two years, and then we Oh, so she managed to convince you. She managed to convince us to stop the subscription model, and then ultimately, we kind of overrode her. (laughs) I'm glad you told that story. That's super germane. So I want to get into the weeds for just a minute, and I hope my listeners will bear with me if they're not up to um, speed on LTV, CAC, and CUF, and all the rest. So in the book, you talk about lifetime value to cost of acquisition of a customer, customer acquisition cost. The idea being that obviously there's a cost to acquire the customer, but the lifetime value of the customer ultimately you hope is a net positive. But then you go on to say that the cash up front should exceed, should always be north of one to one compared to the customer acquisition cost. So first of all, do I understand that correctly? Yeah, I wouldn't say always has to be. Let, let's just let's get into some of the okay. some of the definitions because there seems like a like I'm lost. There's a disconnect in there, and I'm yeah, yeah help me for out sure. So first of all, let's let's understand the definition. So lifetime value of a customer is essentially the amount of contribution you're going to get from that customer over their lifetime. So if they're going to pay you a thousand dollars a month and you're going to keep them for two years, that's a thousand times twenty four months, and so that's twenty four thousand dollars. That's lifetime value. It, it, there's this concept of contribution, which takes in gross margin, but in in most accounting firms, uh, it's 100% gross profit because there's no cost of goods sold in a traditional sense, unless you're paying outsourced contractors to do the accounting work, et cetera. So that's lifetime value. So take how much you get per month and you multiply by the number of months. For most accounting firms, grossly underestimate how much lifetime value they get from a typical client and therefore grossly underinvest in sales and marketing. 
If you think about how long the average client stays with you as an accounting firm and how much revenue you stand to gain from them over, I mean, imagine the typical small business, they pay you five grand a year to do their tax return. They stay with you for 20 years. That's $120,000 worth of lifetime value. Yet many, many accounting firms grossly underinvest in sales and marketing because they want to get their return in the first year. And again, that's a difference between a subscription model and a transaction model. In a transaction model, when you sell a bouquet of flowers in a store, you have to make money every time you sell a bouquet of flowers. So you can't afford to spend a lot in getting the customer to walk into the store. In an accounting practice where you've got a lifetime value of 24 months as an example, you can very much invest handsomely in sales and marketing to win them because you're going to get a tremendous amount of value over time. And so when I do this with accounting firms, oftentimes the penny drops and they're like, oh my gosh, we have been wildly underestimating. Like the the partner kind of gets in their car and goes and visits with the client and they think, oh, well, that's, you know, I bought them a coffee and so that's sales and marketing. It's like, if you only knew how much bigger, more successful, more profitable your accounting firm could be if you actually invested proportionately into sales and marketing, it, it would blow your mind. That's LTV and it's, the other relationship here is CAC. So customer acquisition costs. So basically what does it cost you to win a customer? And if the accounting firm partner is relying on word of mouth and going to visit the prospect and buying them a coffee in the process, your CAC is the cost of your gas and the coffee. For most companies, you're going to be much better served by investing in sales and marketing. And then you're going to want to think about, well, what is the cost of that? So are you buying search terms? Are you having, you're investing in optimize, like search engine optimization? So your website comes to the top of Google when somebody searches, you know, accounting firm in Boise, as an example, what are you doing to invest in sales and marketing? Those expenses are your CAC. So you take the number of clients you win in a month and you divide it by the expenses that you invested to win that client. So if you spend 10,000 in sales and marketing, you win two clients, your CAC is $5,000 per customer. And most investors will be looking for, as they're, as they're evaluating subscription-based companies, uh, an LTV to CAC of at least three to one meaning you're capturing three times more lifetime value than it costs you to acquire the customer. Whenever I do this exercise with accounting firms, Geraldine, we get numbers like 20 to one, 40 to one, 50, like mind blowing numbers that any software company would kill for, right? Any software, any, any subscription based company would absolutely fall over themselves for numbers like double digits. Sort of. What do you mean? If it represents, I mean, if it represented, I mean, the problem with getting 40 to one is that the dollar amount invested in marketing is so small. Yes. Yes. And if you did it at scale, maybe. But I cut you off. So keep going. No, no, My point is when you see those ratios of 20 to 1, 30 to 1, 40 to 1, it's a giant blinking green light to invest in marketing, right? Because you're going to get that money back over the lifetime of the, of, of your customer. So it's it's a very common experience when I do this exercise with accounting firms. They've got a really healthy LTV to CAC and therefore they should really be investing in, in sales and marketing. Like getting your cash up front or cuff, it really, it, you know, it gives you the fuel to invest in sales and marketing. So if you are investing aggressively in sales and marketing, let's say, to use an example, where you work with a small business, the $5,000 is your billing with them once a year, and you're hoping to do business with them for 20 years. So it's 100 grand worth of potential revenue that they're gonna get. 
and your cash up front is how much of that revenue you can charge for up front. It's unlikely that you're going to get more than a year's worth of service up front. You may only get a month's worth of service up front. One of the things that you'll find when you productize, to go back to something we spoke about earlier, is that we're socialized to buy products upfront, pay for them before we use them. Like if you think about my Tide bottle at Costco, you don't use the Tide, empty the bottle, and then pay the invoice. You buy the bottle, you leave the store, and then you use the product. It's the same for productizing services. So if you if you say, look, we have a uh, you know, the back office support system, uh, we charge $1,000 a month and we charge it the first day of the month. And so in that case, they get a month's worth of revenue up front. You may only be able to get a month, maybe a quarter of revenue up front, but anything you can get up front as opposed to waiting 60 days for them to pay your invoice will give you the fuel to continue to invest in sales and marketing with confidence. So I think it does make sense to try to get as much cash up front because you know, otherwise, the, the faster you grow, the more your, your, your company will suck cash. Whereas what you really want is to just feel really confident at what you're doing. So if you can get a quarter worth of revenue up front, uh, that's amazing. Great. I have two more questions here. One of them is around what you call setting fire to the platform. One of my clients, for example, works with course creators who create libraries of content. And she recently commented that one thing that these business owners think is that they're just going to open up the doors and they'll capture all kinds of foot traffic. But in what she finds, what the numbers bear out in working with a bunch of her clients across this niche is that in reality, people don't buy as much as if you lift the drawbridge and only lower it back down on occasion. And then you've got some pent up demand and you end up making more money than if you just always left the drawbridge down or as you put it, set fire to the platform or lifting the drawbridge in this case, set fire to the platform. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, just it's scarcity sells, right? So if one of the challenges of a subscription business model, if you think about the subscriptions that you buy, QuickBooks Online, Salesforce.com, HubSpot, whatever SaaS product that you, you buy in your firm, chances are that that is a 365, 24-7 product, meaning whether you buy it today, tomorrow, the next day, it's the same product. And there's very little difference between whether you buy it today. So there's always a baked in reason to defer the decision. You know what? I, I was thinking about going with HubSpot, but Infusionsoft looks pretty good. And oh, I'll make the decision tomorrow. And and there's never really anything different. Like you don't lose anything by making the decisions more. So I think from a sales and marketing perspective, you want to manufacture that scarcity. And your colleague is calling it like moving up the drawbridge, which is basically in the case of an accounting firm saying, look, you know, we offer this mastermind, this back office support systems offering, whatever it is that you're going to offer in subscription, we offer it to a limited 12 clients or 50 clients or whatever it is. And there's three opportunities a year to jump in. And if if you miss that opportunity, then unfortunately we'll put you on the waiting list for next quarter, but we're full effectively. And that just gives people a bit of a nudge towards decision-making and, and getting them over the the classic challenge of any subscription offering was is that if it's a subscription, it's always available. That's by definition what it is. And so you kind of have to manufacture some scarcity. Okay, great. So last question here, and that is that I'm working with four CPAs right now who are headed into subscription in their own businesses. And they're very much pioneering something new that doesn't exist. And I don't think that CPAs think of themselves as 
the pioneering type necessarily, but in order to move to subscription, because it's so rarely being done still in the space, you'll need to pioneer. Can you talk about the reluctance to pioneer something new compared to the the risk and the possible reward of being the first one to the party? Yeah, well, we talked about some of the reward earlier and in, in that a subscription-based accounting firm is more valuable, it's more predictable, you get the the you know the Trojan horse effect, people buying more from you, et cetera. And so I think there's a significant reward to being a pioneer. I think one of the things that is less spoken about, but 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 really quite acute for accounting firm owners is the roller coaster that is associated with tax season, right? All the the, the many missed birthdays and t-ball tournaments and so forth during tax you know season has a lifestyle penalty, and it's a it's a real cost that that accountants uh, incur, and so in leveling out your revenue stream through recurring sources, I think it 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 can. It can be a tremendous benefit, not only financially, but also just emotionally and psychologically. So I think there's a lot of upside to being a pioneer. And I think, look, in particular for freedom fighters, you already enjoy the pull position. They already, when I say they, business owners who are freedom fighters have that psychographic, they already view you as their trusted advisor. You've got an incredible platform of trust to draw from. And when you say, look, uh, we've worked with business owners like you for 20 years and we found the very best way for us to work together is a quarterly billing plan where we agree up front that we're going to deliver these services uh, for this fee and we're going to do this. You have an incredible platform of credibility that very few people have because they already trust you. They They know you are trustworthy. And that's, that's rare. And not to draw down on that relationship equity, I think, is a mistake. You have it. They already trust you. And so just stepping into your authority in that way and saying, I think we should do business this way. I've seen it work. Trust me effectively. It works. I, I think you're in a position, particularly with Freedom Fighters, that very few service providers are in, and frankly, they would love to swap places with you. So I think stepping into that position of authority that you enjoy, I think, uh, would be my suggestion. I love that. Step into your authority. John, you have something to give to listeners. Can you tell them what that is and where they can find it? Yeah, we put together a little white paper. It's kind of like an ebook on the nine subscription models. So you can start to think about which of them would apply best to your accounting firm. You can do a bit of a a test on that. So if you want to download it, you can just go to builttosell.com slash Carter, your surname, and uh, you can download it. It's free and it's, it's, uh, it's a good read if you're thinking about subscription models. Excellent. We will link to that in the show notes for listeners who are out skiing <laughs> or at the golf club. John Warlow, this has been fabulous. I really appreciate you coming on the Business Strategy for CPAs podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. Holy smokes, that was a valuable conversation. If you're a growth-minded mountain climber, an independence-seeking freedom fighter, or a master at your craft, and you want to improve your subscription situation, be sure to get your hands on a copy of John's book, The Automatic Customer. And if you're ready to get out of delivery, stop what you're doing and head over to SheThinksBigCoaching.com to subscribe to my daily drip of business strategy for CPAs. 
you'll get one easily digestible tip a day on how to position your business, how to price your services, how to sell outcomes so that you can be more profitable, get your time back, and get off the tax hamster wheel for once and for all. That URL again is shethinksbigcoaching.com. All right, that's it from me. Have a great week. Hi again. Would you rather spend your weekends outside playing or at your desk? In Down a 40 Hours CPA Mastermind, we put an end to overworking while maintaining revenue. Go to GeraldineCarter.com to learn more. Dates, times, pricing, it's all there.